The Lord is our shepherd. What a wonderful song to sing and to consider today that God is with us in the midst of the darkest and deepest trials of our lives. Well, it's good to be with you again preaching God's word. Uh, I haven't been able to do this for the past few weeks, so I'm thankful to be doing it for the next several weeks. Uh, but I've listened to uh, Thea R.E. Sermon, who was with us from UCCD uh, three weeks ago on Psalm 1. It was just a powerful sermon on the value of God's Word. Uh, and then, obviously, hearing from Lenny and then Mac last week, it's a privilege for me to be able to sit under great Bible preaching here at Redeemer. I'm just thrilled uh, when I get to listen to God's Word, and I'm thrilled when I have the privilege of preaching uh, God's Word to you. Uh, I consider no higher privilege as a pastor than to open up God's Word and to examine and see what God has to say to us. So I'm excited to be here uh, again this morning. Let me just pray again that God would impress this on our hearts. Father, we thank you for your Word, which is powerful. Father, we thank you that you have given us this privilege of examining it, of teaching it, of preaching it. Father, we pray for all of us that this would would get to the deepest riches of our soul, Father, that it would impact us in immeasurable ways, even today, that your scripture would speak to us. We thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whitney Cherak's family couldn't bear to look at her body. The funeral was a closed casket ceremony that drew over 1,400 people. It was a huge event. Family and friends and others gathered from long places far away for this event to mourn this girl's death. See, it was an unbelievable tragedy. In an instant, lives were changed. On an April evening a few years ago, a group of university students were driving on a highway when a tractor trailer slammed right into their van, killing five students and leaving one in a coma. It was stunning news for Whitney Cherak's family who received the news that their beautiful daughter had been killed. They were crushed. They felt numb and helpless. Well, for Laura Van Rand's family, they were in awe that their daughter had survived. And they rushed to the hospital to be with her. Now, she was in a coma where she was for several weeks, but her family just stood by her. They held her hand. They prayed for little sweet Laura, that Laura would wake up from the coma, that she would talk with them, that she would walk with them again, that she could go back to school. And soon there was a miracle. Laura woke up. From her coma, and they rejoiced. They were excited. They even set up a, a website chronicling her every move so that they could give praise to God and so that their friends could give praise to God for what Laura was doing. And so, on the day when Laura first fed herself applesauce for the first time, they posted it and they rejoiced. On the day when she played a little game of Connect Four with a friend, they posted on the web and they, they celebrated God's grace. Laura was becoming more and more alert. But as time went on, the Van Rand family began noticing some troubling things. Some things seemed to come right back to Laura and everything was, was normal again, but other things didn't make much sense. Then one day, Laura was told to write her name down on a piece of paper. 
to everyone's shock. The young lady in the hospital bed wrote the name Whitney Cherak. You see, Whitney Cherak and Laura Van Rand looked remarkably alike. They had similar builds, similar facial features, the same long blonde hair. And the injuries sustained in the accident made it difficult to tell the two girls apart, so much so that the coroner on the scene actually mistook the girl who had lived for the girl who had died. You can try to imagine the Van Rand family's despair at learning that the young lady that they had taken care of for the past several weeks had not been their dear Laura, and that their dear Laura had passed away several weeks earlier. Clearly, this was an incredible case of mistaken identity. Whitney's true identity was not known, and this caused her family and friends great pain and stress and misery as they mourned the death of their daughter. And yet she was right there at the hospital, down the street the entire time. Whitney's family had even visited the Van Rand family at the hospital, had even prayed for the little girl, not knowing that it was their daughter, their sister, their friend in that hospital bed right there in front of them, hooked up to the IV, with, hooked up to tubes. It's really unbelievable to imagine this true story. Their daughter was back from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I got frustrated reading this story. If only Whitney's family knew that Whitney was alive. If only they knew that their daughter, sister, friend was still alive in that bed, they would have had peace and joy. If only they had correctly identified the young woman in the hospital when they saw her, then everything would change. Their distress and pain would have turned to gladness and hope and joy. But they couldn't see clearly so much so that they failed to recognize their own daughter. It was an incredible case of mistaken identity. Well, I wonder about us this morning. I wonder how many of us are filled with anxiety and distress because we can't see clearly. So much so that we fail to recognize Jesus Christ and his true identity. Dear brothers and sisters, have we forgotten who Jesus is? Do we live our lives in the mundane and the magnificent moments, believing that Jesus is who he says he is? Or as soon as we face a trial, as soon as we face a difficulty in life, is that truth, does that truth become meaningless to us? Do we forget who he is? Do we forget that he's with us? Or perhaps maybe you're here this morning and you don't know him at all. Or maybe you've been in church all your life. You've heard that Jesus is the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, but you haven't embraced this message with joyful, obedient repentance. No, I think a case of mistaken identity happens to each of us on too many occasions to remember. It happened to the disciples as well. We've seen that throughout the book of Mark, haven't we? From the very first chapter on now to chapter 6. The disciples just don't get it. They don't get that Jesus is the Son of God and this mistaken identity leads them to fear, leads them to anxiety and worry. Perhaps no scene is as startling as our story this morning in Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Mark. If you're new to our church or maybe even new to church, 
Mark is the second book of the New Testament. It's the last part of the Bible in a section called the Gospels. Mark's the second book there. We've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ for the past several months. And today we're going to read this astounding story of mistaken identity. And I'll begin reading in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Well, this morning we're going to look at this case of mistaken identity that causes the disciples to distress and to fear. And we'll see two things about our fear. First, we'll see the reason we are afraid. And second, we'll see the answer to our fears. So the reason and then the answer. First, let's look at the reason we're afraid, and then we'll pick back up the story in verse 45. We see that it's evening time in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had just fed the 5,000. We saw that last week. Mac took us through this amazing feeding of thousands of people. And yet we see an urgency in the mind of Jesus here as he sends the disciples away on a boat. I mean, the disciples had arrived with Jesus for the feeding, but now he pushes them away. He hustles them away so that they can go and he can dismiss the crowd himself. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, we see from the same account in John chapter 6 that the crowd was pressing forward to make Jesus the king. They've seen him restore the bodies of lepers. They've even seen him raise from the dead. He's calmed the storm by talking to the wind. And now he's taken a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and he's fed thousands so messianic expectations are at an all-time high. Kingdom fever is in the air. Jesus is a talk of every town. And they finally see that their king has arrived. You remember that the Israelites are under severe Roman oppression. They are under severe taxes and military oppression. So you can imagine the excitement that they have when they finally have found their ruler. Let's go, they thought. 
Just take them down. Jesus, just blow the Romans up. We can take over the world. You know, we can take over the world with you if you just say it with your word. And so these expectations have risen. They're ready to revolt and have a revolution. But we know that reading through the Bible, Jesus never had a plan to be the leader of an earthly revolution. He had come not to kill, but he had come to die. So he sends his disciples away immediately. It's likely he wanted to keep the disciples from getting swayed by the crowd's expectation. So he sends them away quickly and handles the crowd on his own. Then after dismissing the crowd, we see that Jesus goes up to the mountainside to pray. You know, we notice this in the Gospels often that Jesus, after a busy season of ministry or or after a time of high messianic expectation, he goes and he prays. We see this in Mark chapter 1. We see it again here in Mark chapter 6. And so perhaps Jesus is asking for strength for himself to keep him from yielding to the popular acclaim to his earthly success. I think it's a good word for us here at Redeemer in the UAE. On this occasion, we see Jesus at the height of his earthly success. He's got a huge following. Thousands of people want to make him king, and he dismisses them. He says, go home, guys. I'm going to go pray in solitude. It's amazing. You think of all the revolts happening around the world right now, all these uprisings. These leaders are trying to gather as many people as they can so they could lead this charge. And yet Jesus says, go home. It's not what I came here to do. I'm going to go pray by myself on a mountainside with the Father. I wonder what that has to tell us here at Redeemer. You know, when we think of prayer, you know, most of us pray when times are tough, when we need something from God. I know when my nerve condition is accelerated and lately it's been pretty bad, it's caused me to pray and to beg God's mercy and healing. Or when I was away from uh, my family in the U.S. and I know they're going through a tough time, I prayed for my kids, I prayed for my wife, I prayed that God would, would do a good work in their life. See, we tend to do that when we're in desperate need. But how about when things are going well? How about when, earthly speaking, things are going great? You're making lots of money, your work is paying off. You're made a leader in the church or in your neighborhood, in your business. Well, first of all, are you thanking God for his gracious provision? Because it's all grace. But even more importantly, and here's what I want to get at, is do you pray and ask God to keep you from striving after earthly success? And when things are going well, are you asking God to keep you from pride, keep you from arrogance, to keep you from loving the gifts more than the giver of the gifts? Oh, I pray that as a church, I pray that we would treasure Jesus more than any earthly treasure. That these earthly treasures would look like refuge and garbage to us in comparison to the treasure that is Jesus. Are you asking God to help keep you from materialism that's so rampant here in the UAE? So we need to be reminded that we're not here for earthly success, even when everyone else here in our country tells us that that's why we're here. But see, each of us are here in the UAE not for earthly glory. And when God in his sovereign mercy and grace gave us this privilege to live here, and it's an incredible privilege, isn't it? It's a privilege that you and I actually get to live here. That in each of our passports, if we were to open it up, we would see a visa that says United Arab Emirates. 
It's a privilege that God would allow us to be here in the heart of the Arabian Peninsula. It's a privilege and an honor and a joy. But see, God did not bring us here to build our earthly kingdoms. It wasn't so we could build a comfortable life or build a name for ourselves. No, God brought us here to build a name for Jesus, to build a name for God. And I think that's easy for us to forget when things go well. We're susceptible to pride. We're susceptible to laziness towards him when things are good. So friends, pray and ask God to help you in the good times. Ask for his protection on your soul. Oh, that we would not forsake our soul for earthly achievement or earthly treasures. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't let that be you. Ask for his help. So we see Jesus is up there praying in verse 47. And as he's praying, the disciples are out there on a boat. A big storm comes and these professional sailors are having a difficult, difficult night. They're soaked by the big waves, beaten down by the rough winds. The darkness is blinding them. And so Jesus comes walking on the water. Incredible to think Jesus literally walking on top of the water at about the fourth watch of the night. This was Roman time. It would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the guys had likely been out there in the middle of the sea for hours by now. And so what do we expect reading, reading this story at this point? What do we expect to happen now? Jesus is out there walking on the water. We expect him to save the disciples, right? We expect him to save them out of their misery. But what Jesus does is quite mystifying. Did you catch that in verse 48? It says, Jesus was walking on the water and he was about to pass them by. What? What in the world does that mean? I mean, wasn't Jesus out there to save the disciples? And it wasn't like Jesus was out just for a little midnight stroll on top of the lake. He wasn't trying out his new water shoes, trying to beat the disciples across to the other side. He wasn't playing an April Fool's practical joke on them. So why is Jesus passing them by? Maybe you asked yourself this question in your small groups this past week as you studied the passage in preparation for the sermon. It's actually a pretty simple explanation when you think about it. Some scholars have written about it. It's quite clear what Jesus was actually trying to do here. It might be difficult for us on the first reading to think about it, but, but notice that as the disciples were straining at the oars, as you look back at the story, it's right to think that Jesus was out there to help them, but the question that we need to ask is to help them with what? What did Jesus want to help the disciples with? Think about it. Jesus could have stopped the storm from his prayer time. Jesus could have stopped the storm. He could have even prevented the storm from even happening because Jesus is sovereign over all weather. Now, why is Jesus walking on the water and about to pass them by? 
Well, the answer in this case is Jesus wasn't working on the storm. He wasn't working on the situation. He was working on the disciples. He wasn't just working on their circumstances. And maybe that's what you and I often want in a Savior. We want a Savior who's going to relieve us of our circumstances. We want a Savior who's going to help our situation, maybe help our needs and wants and desires. Jesus, if you just do this, then I'll love you. Jesus, if you do this, I'll adore you. If you do this, I'll, I'll love you, I'll pray to you, I'll praise you. But as Paul Tripp has said, the thing Jesus needs to relieve you most in your life is yourself. The biggest thing we need to be rescued of in our lives is our own self-destructive, sinful rebellion. See, in the story, Jesus is after the disciples' hearts. He wants to reveal his awesome glory to them. Now, he's not walking on the lake to help the disciples with an on-time arrival to Bethsaida. That's really the least of his concern. He's doing something much bigger than that. He wants the disciples to see loud and clear that he is the Lord of the universe. That's the main idea of this text this week. Jesus was helping the disciples understand who he is so that they might experience peace. And that leads to the second point. The answer to our fears is correctly identifying Christ. The answer to our fears is correctly identifying Christ. But verse 49 says the disciples didn't get it, did they? They thought he was a ghost. But they should have gotten it. Jesus walking by them. In doing so, he was pointing back to the Old Testament, passages that the disciples likely knew. In Exodus 32, it says that Mount Sinai, the transcendent Lord, passed by Moses in order to reveal his name and compassion. And again, in 1 Kings chapter 19, at Mount Horeb, the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah by passing him by Now, what Jesus was doing was passing before them, passing in view of them, merely than just going past them. And in Job chapter 9, that was read to us by Ben earlier, we see that there's an awesome separation between God and humanity, that only God can stretch out the heavens, that only God can move the mountains, that only God can tread on the waves of the sea. Now, to walk on water meant that you were God in the flesh. To the God described by Job as holy God, not to be confused with human beings. And by passing him by, Jesus is trying to make his divinity crystal clear to the disciples. And if that's not enough, did you see what Jesus says to them? Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. You can't always tell in English translations, but Jesus is using the exact same identification that God gives when he discloses himself in Exodus 3 to Moses. It is the great I am. Jesus takes God's name. He not only walks on water, but he takes the very name of God. He's saying, don't be afraid, disciples. I am here. Take heart. I am God in the flesh. 
So why didn't the disciples get it? Why were the disciples so clueless when Jesus was so clear? Well, Mark tells us in verse 52, they didn't understand about the loaves. So the point of that miracle was that the disciples would know that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's the giver and provider of all things. But they missed it. They didn't connect the dots at all. Jesus had created bread from grain that never grew. He had taken fish that were dead, that never lived, that never swam, that never flapped around, and he fed a multitude. And yet the disciples must have been more in awe of the sheer abundance of food, and they missed the one who had made the food. They just didn't get it because their hearts, the text says, were hardened like the Israelites of old, like Pharaoh and the Pharisees, only Jesus could open their eyes to believe. The disciples reveal to us our need for grace. And as our story closes, if it's not embarrassing already for the disciples, Mark closes the chapter talking about these crowds that have come to him from everywhere to be healed. While the disciples missed him, it seems like everyone else recognized that Jesus had power. Now, certainly most didn't believe at this point that he was the Son of God. They just wanted healing. But Mark is highlighting for us that while the disciples missed him, the crowds have faith in the power of Jesus. So the point of this miracle is that Jesus was helping the disciples and he's helping us understand who he is so that we might experience peace. And the disciples were going to need it because Jesus was on his way to the cross where they would all face the greatest storm. Later the disciples would suffer for their faith. Many, most died as martyrs taking the gospel to the world. So Mark wants us to know Jesus is the Lord of the universe, that he is with us in the midst of trials. And so, friends, I ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? It's the most important question that anyone can ever ask you. Do you know Jesus, the all-powerful, the almighty, the all-knowing God? Because apart from him, you can have no peace here on earth or everlasting. Maybe you've heard the gospel message for a while. We say it every week here at church. Maybe you've come to Redeemer. You've heard and you even believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, to rescue his people from his sins. And yet you've never become a Christian. You've never placed your faith in Christ alone to save you. Maybe your heart is hardened towards him. Maybe you think all that we're saying is foolishness. I would tell you that this passage this morning is speaking directly to you. Maybe you don't feel the urgency. Ask God to help you. Maybe you doubt whether this is all real. Ask God to help your unbelief. Or maybe your pride is hindering you from following Jesus. Ask for humility Or maybe you've been in church for so long that you're embarrassed. You've developed a hardened heart because you're embarrassed that if you become a Christian and tell other people that you become a Christian, then you'll be embarrassed because we'll look down upon you because it appeared that you had been in Christian community for so long. No, friend, that's not true at all. We will be encouraged. We will be thrilled if you come to faith. I wanted to take just a couple moments to encourage you that God is doing an amazing work here at Redeemer by His grace. That over the last couple months, God has taken away hardened hearts. And many have become Christians in these past couple months here at Redeemer. 
It's really unbelievable. It's really uh, floored me and encouraged me and just, uh, just energized me to hear these stories. Even just last week, uh, I was encouraged at our fellowship hall right there in front of Taco Bell. I'll never forget it. Right there, getting ready to get in line. I was overjoyed when a young man came up to me and said that he had just become a Christian after our service. That he had been coming to Redeemer since the very beginning and he had realized though that he had never repented of his sin. That he had never believed in Christ and trusted him for salvation. So he gave his life for Christ and we celebrated right there. We, we thanked the Lord for what he had done. A couple months ago there was a different man in our church who had been coming to church, uh, different churches, for decades and it finally hit him that he wasn't a Christian just because his parents were Christians. And he wasn't a Christian just because he went to church from an early age. So he repented and believed after going through our membership class and meeting with some of us. And now he's diving into book after book after book. We can't give him books fast enough for him to read and for him to grow in his love and adoration for God. There's another man who, after attending for a little bit, coming to our membership class and sitting in on some Bible studies, he felt the overwhelming, crushing weight of his sin. Felt this overwhelming sense of unrighteousness before God. And he asked Jesus to save him from his sin, and he believed in Christ. And there's another lady who came to Christ after working through some personal problems. And in the midst of that, she realized that she had a greater problem in her life. And that was being unreconciled to God. And so she believed in Christ and repented of her sin. Now friends, those are just some of the stories that have happened just in the past couple months right here at Redeemer. It encourages us and I hope it encourages you to see that God is moving here in our church by his grace. We have been astounded and we yearn for the day when these walls won't fit us anymore because there will be a revival so great here amongst us that people will be coming to Christ in droves. That's why, we, that's why we're here. That's why we started Redeemer 14 months ago. It's to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So fellow Christians, are you praying that God would soften hearts here in the UAE? See, no one can be saved apart from the work of God. No one can be converted. No one can come to saving faith because of our flashy evangelistic presentations or anything that we do in our own power but only by the work of the Spirit. So friends, are you asking that God would soften the hearts of your neighbors? Are you asking God that he would soften the hearts of your co-workers? Friends, are you asking God to soften the hearts of your friends and family? And friend, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, we are thrilled that you're here. Please know we want this for you more than anything else. More than any earthly blessing, we want to see you come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We want to see you experience true peace here on earth and everlasting peace in heaven with God. If you don't know the story, the Bible tells us that each of us have sinned against the holy God. Our maker and our creator, creator we have offended and it has alienated ourselves from God. We rebelled in such a way that we wanted to be God. We had rejected Him. And now we stand under the righteous judgment of God. 
So that's the bad news, but the Bible gives us a host of good news when he tells us that God went on a redemptive mission. That Jesus came from heaven fully God, fully man, and he lived a perfect life. As 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why Christ came and lived. It's so that he could die and bring you to God. Our sin had created this chasm between us and God. And us as finite, hopeless sinners could do nothing to get ourselves to God. No good works, no church attendance, no obedience to the law. Nothing could we do to get to him. And so God in Christ provided a way to bridge this chasm. He became our substitute. And so the cross was more than just the execution of a good man. It was the substitution of God for us. He lost his, his life so that yours could be saved. And the Bible is clear how one becomes a Christian. It's not by being in a church merely or being born in a home. It's not by trying harder, but it's through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2 says it's a free gift that you are to believe in Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to become one today. I'd encourage you right there from your seat to say, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry. By God's grace, I'm going to turn from my sin and trust not in myself, but in the death of Jesus to save me. I encourage you to do that today. And you can have faith that he is indeed mighty to save because after being in the grave for three days, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. We're about to celebrate this on Easter morning on the beach, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the grave could not contain him. That he was, in fact, who he claimed to be in his life. I encourage you to place your faith in him. There's no more important decision that you can make than to follow Jesus. Well, if you're a Christian here today, you know this truth, you know this gospel, this good news. But my question for you is, are you living like it? You know this truth that Jesus is the Son of God, but you and I need to live in the reality of that truth. You need to live like Jesus really is the Son of God. Have you wondered why the disciples were in the storm on the lake? I mean, they're being obedient, right? Jesus had told them to go out to the lake. It wasn't like they were disobedient. No, they were struggling precisely because they were being obedient. They were doing exactly what they were told to do. And yet they couldn't do it. I mean, as a Christian, do you ever feel this way? You're serving God, you're doing good things, you're doing what he's asked of you to do, but you're just struggling. You plead with him for help. Well, the disciples are exactly where Jesus wants them. In the angry waves, in the storm. So why would a God of mercy, love, and compassion do this? Well, precisely because he loves them so much. He wants them to recognize who he is and to rely on him. Friends, are you relying on Christ in your trials? Are you living as if Christ is someone else other than who he says he is? Maybe you just treat him like a good luck charm or a therapist or a miracle worker. 
Do you suffer from a case of mistaken identity? In the midst of your trials, have you forgotten that He has the power to calm any storm in your life? And even in those that He doesn't calm, do you know that He's still God? He's still sovereign? He's still loving? He's still with you? That you are never alone? No, a proper understanding of who Christ is will give us peace to withstand the trials of this life. A misunderstanding of who He is only brings distress and panic. But my fear for us as Christians is that we live functionally like atheists. That we're functional atheists. Sure, we say that there's a God. Sure, we believe in Jesus. But we go through our days forgetting who He is. We don't live like it. We have gospel amnesia. Just going throughout our days forgetting Jesus. Forgetting His finished work on the cross. Forgetting that He is with us. He has the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh taken root in your heart. Has it produced fruit of repentance and faith? And do you live in light of this truth each day? See, the disciples' trial in the midst of the sea and your trials right now, regardless of what you're going through, are gifts of grace. You may not have thought of it that way before, but God redeems our suffering and forces it to bow to his gospel purposes in our lives. In this sense, a trial can become a gift to serve our faith in God. If you're in a trial right now and you feel like you're like the disciples just rowing against the wind, you don't feel like you're making any progress, well, I encourage you to say what James says in chapter 1, to consider it all joy, that God is working in your life, that God is doing something God wants you to see more of Him. He wants you to see His glory. You can understand that God's ways are like looking at the ocean from the beach. There's so much more of the ocean that you don't see than what you do see. There's more to your trials than meets the eye. The greatest medicine to you in your trials is to remember who Jesus is and to preach this great gospel to yourself each day. It's the most important thing you can do. And like the rain soaks into the ground, I pray that the gospel would soak deep down into your soul. Friends, forget this gospel amnesia. Even forget gospel remembrance. What each of us needs here at Redeemer is gospel astonishment. We need to be astonished that Jesus Christ came to die for us. We need to be astonished that he loves us so much. And as we approach Good Friday and Easter, we need to be astonished at the greatest news in the world. Tullian Chavijan has said, Christian growth does not happen first by behaving better, but believing better, believing in bigger, deeper, brighter ways that Christ, what Christ has already secured for you sinners and that's why when you wake up in the morning preach to yourself Romans 8 remind yourself that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that if God is for us who can be against us and he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over freely for us how will he not also with him give us all things. Now the answer to our fears and trials and distress is not to escape, it's not to fear, it's not to complain. 
It's to guard against the case of mistaken identity. Now for Whitney Cherak's family, their daughter was there the whole time. They looked at her but couldn't see that it was her and they mistook her for someone else. Don't look at Jesus and mistake him for someone else. Don't come here each Friday and mistake Jesus for just a man. Don't come here each Friday and mistake him for just a prophet. Don't come here mistaken just for a man who's not in control or a God who's so distant that he could care less about us. No, understand that he is the sovereign king of the universe who loves you, who cares for you. He is the great I am who has said, take courage, it is I. No, friends, to experience peace in the midst of life's trials, we need to know Jesus is the son of God and we need to live like it. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that Jesus is the Son of God who dwelt on this earth. He healed the sick, calmed storms. He even raised people from the dead. But we thank you that he did not come merely to live. But most of all, he came to die to save his people from their sins. And so we thank you for Christ. We pray that the fact that you did not spare your own Son but gave him up freely so that we may live. Oh, Father, we thank you for this truth. Would it comfort us in the midst of our trials? And would it bring us great cause for rejoicing? Oh, we thank you for giving us peace in Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Christ the Comforter. Amen.